0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. We are so thrilled to have Manisha Thacker here, who has worked in financial services for over 30 years with an emphasis on women's economic empowerment and financial well-being, a nationally recognized thought leader in this space. She has been featured in a wide range of publications, including Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NPR, PBS, CNN, CNBC, Real Simple, and Women's Health, author of several finance books for women in their 20s and 30s, and here today to talk to us about her Newest book, Money Zen. Manisha, I just I loved this book, and I'm so excited to unpack it with you, and so excited to talk with you about it. But tell us what what was the what was the impetus for Money Zen? Tell us about this book and and why you put this out because I can feel your your heart in it.
1: Yeah, so I, I put it out because I face planted in a massive way as I was crossing over into my 50s, and I had this awareness because I had had a, an illness that literally stopped me in my tracks. And while I was recovering from that, I had this awareness that I had spent the last three decades of my life as a human doing and not a human being. And while I was on bed rest trying to recover, I thought, how did this happen? And so I thought, Let me dive into the research and figure out what what led me to this place. And more importantly, how can I get out? And I had a hunch that there were probably a few other people out there that might identify with the journey. And so that's how the book came into to
0: being. I love this because you start the book with such a personal story and, and sharing how, how this spiral sort of started to happen. And it was funny because as I was reading it, I thought to myself, no, no, I'm I'm not like this. I'm not a workaholic. And that's not me. And I don't take myself or, or the work that seriously. But then as as you went through, one of my favorite parts of the entire book was the difference between workaholism and work engagement. And you underlined it with the emotions and motivation, motivational, emotional, cognitive and behavioral and as you started to give the examples i was like uh-oh that's me that's me which all led to the the side of the pendulum which was not work engagement that's the moral of that story so when did you start to realize that you were that you were also in not in work engagement you were in workaholism
1: i have known pretty much throughout my adult life that i have been a workaholic simply because my modus operandi for the last 30 years has run as fast as I can, hit a brick wall when I'm physically exhausted, collapse, and then get up and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. And so I knew it, but what I didn't viscerally understand was the cost of that. And I think it has a lot to do with society encouraging us to believe that what we do is who we are. You get positive reinforcement, particularly in financial services. Um, They don't call working around the clock uh, unhealthy. They call that being a good employee. And so it wasn't until I actually started in the research that I understood this difference. Up until that point, I thought you're either a workaholic or you are just lolly gagging around. And this notion of work work engagement was so powerful for me because I realized it doesn't mean that you don't work, it doesn't mean that you don't have passions and you want to grow professionally. But what it does mean is you shut it off. It's not in your head 24/7. And then you have the space to grow your emotional wealth. One that I found fascinating was this distinction came from an academic who is a specialist in workaholism. And so that's how rampant it is that her whole body of research work is focused on this.
0: Well it's fascinating because you realize that this this cult of never enough where where high achievers we probably just call this achieving mm-hmm. and really you break it down to to look yourself in the mirror and say is it achieving or are you part of this cult of of never enough and then you talk about how this destroyed relationships and and health and mental well-being and self-esteem so tell me tell me how this realization really started to happen and how you started to you, you articulate this in such a beautiful way to the reader how were you able to find the science behind it, but also how to explain it to people to get them to actually receive it? Because I know as Achiever, as someone who coaches a lot of Achievers, when someone tells you that, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I'm I'm here to make my mark and and to do big things and I'm going to keep working until I get there. That, you know, that work-life balance is for suckers.
1: So I used to try all the things, meditation, yoga, box breathing. Nature bathing, walking on grass without shoes on, and it would help for a little bit. And those are all very, very valid practices. But it was this, it it was kind of a dimmer being turned on in terms of my seeing the light. Um, My marriage ended because I was a I was a shitty wife. I was never around, and so my ex found somebody who was around. And I realized I had lost so many friends over the years because I didn't show up for them. I wasn't there for weddings. I wasn't there when they were having, you know, life speed bumps and and needed someone to be there. And then my physical health. Uh, I ha- the, the first round that I had, I, I was in Laos uh, with my ex-husband and we were motorcycling through the jungles. I was not driving. I was on the back. And I got bit by an infected mosquito, got dengue fever, which normally isn't tragic. But in my case, there was a, a series of events that ultimately led me in the direction of potential organ failure, which is serious. And Right after that, so that was probably in my early to mid-40s, I swore I was going to change, and then I, I didn't. So It's kind of like I had the wake-up, um, and literally, when I was struggling with a dengue fever in the emergency room, um, my family was called in from the East Coast, and I think we all thought this could be it. And it is 110% true that you do not think I wish I had worked more. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm feeling better. And I'm like, you know, in, in bed and my assistant is at my side and we're continuing to work. And so it wasn't until I had a second health incident combined with an, an experience at work that I didn't expect to have, which was... Running through my financials, which I did constantly because that's what my uh, profession is. But I was talking with a potential client who did not want to share her financials. She was very private, and so we, we wanted to show her how we really go deep with with clients. And so we used my financials, and the team interviewed me. And I mean, I was crying by the end of the meeting because I realized I had been chasing after getting to a certain number. I had hit it, still thought it wasn't enough, and that I was emotionally bankrupt.
0: Wow. I You talk about that in the book, that, that part of this cult of never enough is that you just never actually hit the ceiling because once you get there you'll still feel that way you'll still feel like it's not enough for you so one of the one of the the subtitle of the book is the secret to finding your enough so was that the moment that you said I've just got to figure out when I'm going to put the football down and walk off the field I've got to figure out when enough is enough and what was your journey to finding that and what and what's the answer for you
1: I wish I could say I was so wise that I started off um, with, with the goal of finding my enough. I started off simply uh, not wanting to be a psychotic workaholic and understand how that happened. As I unraveled the layers I started to fully understand the multiplicity of factors that drove my behavior. And only then was I able to open up my mind to the concept of finding your enough. Certainly, I'd heard plenty of people talk about it, but it just felt outside. Like I couldn't feel that desire inside because i was so used to chasing and having the bar move forward and in my case the chasing was money my i was living my life to optimize a very sick equation which is self worth equals net worth but this can happen to anyone A yoga instructor was telling me for her, it's self-worth equals the number of students in her class and how many private lessons she's giving. An academic told me it was how many papers she's publishing and how many times those papers are cited in other academic journals. So whatever is on the other side of your self-worth equals question mark. If it's unhealthy, then most likely you are struggling with this cult of never enough and being able to redefine, if you will, the equation that you're op- you're using to optimize your decisions around your scarce resources of time and money can be la- life transforming. And I wish I could give a crisper answer than that, but I think it's important to know and hear that it's it's kind of fuzzy because most of us who struggle with this we want an instant answer. We want three tips too. And that's I wish that's how it works, but it's not. It's, you know, they say the way out is going through. And nowhere is that more true, I found, than in this process of finding your enough.
2: Mm. And if if I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but the at us at a really high level, money's in. For you, is this combination of financial health and emotional wealth? And in the combination of those two, produce what is your money, Zen, and what's relative to you. Is, is that fair to, to summarize it that way?
1: Krista, yes, absolutely. That's spot on. And I, I expand upon that definition when it doesn't resonate with people immediately to explain each of those three pieces independently. So when I think about money zen, I define that as a place where you are feeling calm, confidence, and clarity around the role that money plays in your life and your relationship to money. And what I learned through the research and my own uh, journey is that The way you get to money's end is by finding for yourself, because it's different for all of us. What is financial health? What does that mean to you? And what is emotional wealth? And I'll define each and then we can chat more about it. I define financial health as the place where, for the type of life you want to have, you can meet your current obligations without feeling any stress, you know you have something set aside to help if there are emergencies, and you feel comfortable with your plan for the future in terms of what you are saving and what you're saving for. And there's not a number to that. So that's a very important piece. And oftentimes in this process, people have to redefine what financial health is to them. Um, it might be a lower number, it might be a higher number. And then emotional wealth to me is, I call it all the things that make your heart sing. And people know it when they see it. So for instance, when I first started on this journey, I had no idea what it was, because I had no hobbies, I had no friends, I had nothing outside of work. And for me, it started with my nephews and my niece and realizing when I played with them, I was in flow. And, you know, gradually then it moved on to, oh, I'd like to pick up a new language. I'd like to start playing piano again. I'd like to try Zumba. And but in the beginning for so many of us, it's it's hard to define and as with anything you go through seasons in life so your emotional wealth definition will change with with seasons my parents are in their early 80s so the ability to provide elder care right now is a big source of emotional wealth for me that's how i define the the equation
2: i feel really fortunate because i get the opportunity to work with so many amazing people in our community and our customers and get to be a part of their world. And they trust me with being a part of their goals. And more often than not, almost everyone is focused on health. And at the core of that is diet and eating a balanced diet. But eating this kind of diet, it's a huge time commitment and it's easy to get knocked off track. That's why it's so great to have a solution when you don't have the time to do the prepping and the cooking and the cleanup, but you still wanna eat healthy. That's why we partner with Factor. And Factor is chef-created, dietitian-approved meals that are ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, there's no prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. The variety of different options and meals that they have is really impressive, but go see for yourself. Head to factormeals.com 150 and use code 150 to get 50% off. That's code 150 at factormeals.com 150 to get 50% off.
0: I love that, Manisha, and I think that what I'm hearing is this sort of underlying theme that in order to define your enough, you have to define what it is that matters to you. You have to know yourself, and you have to know what brings you joy, and you have to spend some time with that, which sometimes when you've been in the cult of never enough for long enough, you you lose sight of that. What was that discovery like for you? I mean, I, ha- I have to imagine it was sort of like getting to know yourself again, or maybe for the first time ever.
1: For me and what i think for readers will be surprising but incredibly powerful is the notion that you don't start the process with trying to define what emotional wealth is for you because so many of us workaholics we've done programs where you know we've read tons of books on positive psychology or what are your life values? I can't tell you how many times I've done the wheel of life circle. If people haven't done it, Google wheel of life, and it helps you identify what values are. There's another exercise I've done in so many different retreats and contexts where there are a hundred different words on the page and you identify the first 20 for your values and then you cut it back, cut it back and identify your five strongest values so I did all that stuff. I knew what my values were but I I wasn't living them. And the reason I wasn't living them was I did not I I did not understand what were the factors that were bringing me to this place where I was behaving in this manner. And so in the book I talk about the four buckets that I identify and they range from personal small T traumas, which are things that happen to us before the age of 25 that on the surface may seem really small, but that imprint on us a certain kind of behavior that continues and becomes more and more toxic as we get older. There are cultural norms, this notion of who we are, what we do. Derek Thompson from the Atlantic calls it al- worshiping at the altar of workism." ism Then there's societal influences. We're bombarded with all kinds of unrealistic media images far beyond just social media. And then there are also evolutionary biological influences, things that trigger our amygdala in ways that are brains were not intended to use that amygdala. And so understanding which of those buckets in kind of what degrees is the key to getting to the point where you can truly not just intellectually know your values, but emotionally and logistically live your values.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, each of those the that you mentioned, the trauma, cultural norms, societal influences, and I, I think biological um, influences, those all feel like, in a Evolutionary way-
1: Evolutionary biology, yeah.
2: Yeah, they all feel like, in a way, triggers that, if you're not aware of them, could cause you to move out of alignment with your values. Like So being conscious of what these things are for you, because if you have a kind of a- I don't want to call it aspirational, but a place that you you know you'd like to operate into. Like your values are X, Y, and Z. And if you don't live those, then you do feel you know, out of alignment. You feel like your your life's full of resistance or you're, you're not fulfilled. So what, if I understand what you're saying is you need to be aware of the, the trauma that may have been imparted on you or some other cultural norms, societal influences, this your, your amygdala's response to fight or flight in your environment, if you don't know what those triggers are for you, you can quickly skip out of alignment with your values and then have be running an uphill battle, if if I understand you.
1: You've nailed it. And I'll, I'll give a, a personal example to, to illustrate. When I was in college, I spent my junior year abroad at Oxford, and I remember vividly on the plane ride back, writing on a cocktail napkin, reflecting on what I'd learned and what my vision for my adult life was going to be. And I drew an equilateral triangle. And at the top, I wrote simplicity. I wanted that to be the driving North Star of my life. In the lower left-hand corner, I wrote small joys. And in the lower right-hand corner, I wrote financial independence Growing up my mom always instilled in me this notion that particularly for women money gives women voices and choices so that financial independence was not about getting a net jet's share um but what what happened was over my working years the triangle flipped upside down and it was all teetering on financial independence and i had lost all semblance of small joys and simplicity in my life, even though I knew those were deeply core values for me. And just knowing that I was unable to, no matter how many spas or retreats I went to, I was unable to create a life rooted in simplicity and small joys, which after the book process, I feel I have. If you'll allow me to tell one more story, I'd love to explain how those four buckets led me to that place. In my case, I grew up mixed race in a small town in Indiana. Back then, I was chubby and I had a skin condition called psoriasis. It was very patchy um, and scaly and indian Girls who go into puberty oftentimes get facial hair um, in their, on their upper lip. And in India, it's not a big deal. The mothers know what to do, and you go to a threading studio, and that's that. But in a small town in Indiana with an Indian father and an American mother, they had no idea what to do. I mean, and you know, they didn't think it was a, a big deal. But the kids would call me things like, Cowbutt and thunder thighs, and mustache mouth. And that was from fourth through sixth grade. And that was so painful. I felt so rejected from my peers. Clearly didn't fit in with the cheerleaders and football players. And the way I coped with that was by throwing myself into academics. And I felt connected to and seen by my teachers, And so you keep moving and you get into the adult world and what replaces grades and uh, approval and recognition from teachers, but money and promotions and titles. And so it became a runaway trait. Something that helped me protect myself as a young person ended up cascading into something that was very toxic, and that I no longer needed to be doing. But I couldn't see that until I understood the roots of where that behavior came from. The small T trauma was probably the biggest one for me, but I also experienced things with cultural norms and uh, uh, societal influences and evolutionary biological influences as well. My observation from the women that were incredibly brave to share their stories with me all describe different paths to getting to this place. But it's the understanding of that that enables you to start, as I phrased before, emotionally and logistically living your values
0: Well, I think what's so fascinating about this, Manisha, is that you you identified really what the catalyst was for you to have these experiences and for you to to have the drive that you have and had. And and you're right. I think so many professionals get trapped in this because I always say money just becomes the scoreboard of adulthood. Because you going back to all those people who maybe made you feel less than, you could have gone back to them with, well, my life is so simple and I have all these small joys because in the scoreboard of adulthood that doesn't mean anything, even though it could mean something amazing to you. And so, so many high achievers do get trapped in this because this is the only way for us to go backwards and say, man, I told you so. I told you that I belong here. I told you I'm going to show you that I'm capable and I'm going to show you and myself really is what it ends up coming back to at the end of the day that uh, that I am able to do more or achieve more or this is the way that I'm going to find value within myself and within the world. So I think having clarity on that is so important. And the trap that I see so many achievers fall into is that they end up operating from that space for so long. And to your point, for a period, sometimes having that chip on your shoulder can can help and it can drive you forward. But if we don't if we don't come to terms with it, then we stay stuck there forever. And then so many high achievers I see don't want to get unstuck because they're worried that if they do find they're enough, if they are able to identify it, or if they achieve it, that they maybe won't work as hard or won't have the same drive. Do you see that come up when you have conversations with people or did that come up for you when you were... Going through this experience?
1: Absolutely. I think the reason this comes up is what you reference that there are times where those behaviors genuinely provide great benefits. I'm grateful that I worked so hard in my 20s and 30s that I didn't have time to spend my money. So I was saving buckets of it um, all the way up into my mid. 40s, and as a result, I have strong financial health now in my 50s. Had I not been that driven, my financial picture would be different than it is today. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just factual. And I did worry who I would be if I didn't have my armor of my title and my profession And even right now, we were just chatting a little bit before that we started taping. My partner Jay and I, we bought a a condo loft. I've always wanted to live in a true, authentic warehouse loft in Washington, DC. So, in making chit chat, the first thing, you know, one of the first things that the real estate agent asks is So, what do you do? And the answer that I give now is, so different. And I could see, I could see in their eyes, kind of glazing over, like, well, you must not be very powerful. I hope you can make the down payment. You know, it, I viscerally could see that. And that would have terrified me before I started this journey. But now I think, well, I know who I am. And okay, that's how you're reacting to me. I'm fine with that because I understand you've been trained by society to judge people in that kind of way. And but many, many, many of the women I encountered, and my whole career is focused on economic empowerment for women. I have a very strong hunch many men will relate to exactly what I, I'm saying. The the fear of taking off the professional armor can be
0: paralyzing. Very much so. And I think... I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which was the, the influences on our belief system. And one of the things that you mentioned was the social influence. And to your point, you had that moment in that in that conversation with the agent, oh, what what if she doesn't think I'm important? Or when you are in those board meetings, what if I don't belong here? Which sometimes in our world we might call imposter syndrome. And that comes up for so many people, especially because of the social influence and and the widespread influence of social media, the availability of people. And, and that I always say social media is the highlight reel. We can create whatever story we want to create about our lives. It may not be true, but we're certainly not going to share that. We can create any story that we want. And in, in the book, you talk about this widespread cultural trend that encourages fictional financial lifestyles, which I thought was just such a great way to put it. Can you, can you say more about that? Absolutely. I think many, many people
1: feel pressure to strive because of this fictional financial lifestyle umbrella under which we live in modern society. And most of us don't even realize it's an umbrella. And what I mean by that is that we are exposed to almost nonstop images that are financially unrealistic of the way in which people that we think are just like us are living their lives. So to give you some examples, if you take a look at almost any movie, any TV show, and you pick a character, I happen to do this with a paralegal on the show Suits in the book, but I've done it with all sorts of other characters and professions. And what I find is to live the way these shows portray, let's say in New York, which is a humid city, yet the women never have any frizz in their hair when they go to work. So they've just had a fresh blowout and their nails are always perfect. So they've got weekly mani petties, and the clothes they're wearing clearly have been tailored and you can see the quality of the fabric through the screen. And they're out for $15 drinks with their friends and they live in these great apartments. And so... You know, people make fun of like the the apartment that you know Rachel had on Friends or Carrie Bradshaw on sex in the cities. We we know that, but it's this more insidious thing where I'm seeing police officers and nurses and all kinds of individuals who, when I look at the average income for those positions in those cities they would have to earn 30 to 50% more than those positions pay in order to afford that lifestyle and that's the thing i believe that makes so many of us so many of us feel like well if they can't they can do that i should be able to do that and now the biggest change financially over the last 40 years has been easier and easier access to credit So now we can start looking like them, thanks to credit. But we don't know. uh, Well, so there's the TV and media images. But then as we all start to try and emulate that, we see our, our neighbors doing it, our peer group doing it. We don't know if they're funding that on debt. The aggregate statistics tell us the vast majority of people are funding that on debt. But that's where this vicious cycle starts coming from.
2: So there's so much value in first coming from a place of what is enough for you and figuring out what that is, not what society tells you. And that's the kind of the root of your equation there is like know what you need to be happy knowing what's valuable to you and versus letting it be dictated by external forces. And then you end up in this rat race of you know debt cycle and rinse and repeat.
0: I really con- connected with, with this from the perspective that you bring in the book of joy-based spending too. I myself, I, I like I said, very much personally connected with it because I'm from LA and here, what you drive is as much a symbol of, of anything. Uh, and and to me, it's never really been something that was important to me, but I always felt sort of the societal pressure to drive a nicer car. And I'll never forget a couple years ago, I was walking out to my car and I had spent so much money on this stupid car that frankly, I didn't even like. I didn't even enjoy driving it. It really wasn't my favorite car I had driven. And I was paying so much money for it. And I almost came to a place where I started to resent it because I just bought it to fit in with everybody else. And I had a moment where I said to myself, this brings me no joy. It really just gives me stress. And at this point, I resent the car itself. And literally within a week, I had sold the car and gone and bought something that was much more within my means and and really brought me joy because I looked up and said, "I'm I'm really impartial to the car that I drive. It doesn't really matter to me. And I'm in a place where everyone's drinking, dinging your doors, and and uh, and you're probably going to get rear-ended at some point in traffic anyway. And so it just sort of was this moment for me where I said This, you know, I'm I'm only going to spend money where I feel that it matters.' Which which I resonated with in the joy-based spending. Can you talk more about that and how you came to this conclusion, and also what it actually means and how people can practice this?
1: Sure." Throughout the years working in financial services, I noticed pretty much uniformly, if I use the word budget, people would just viscerally react in a very negative way, which is understandable because we associate budgeting with constraint and restriction and lack of joy and lack of choice. So I started using this term joy-based spending and people would light up. And over the years, I crystallized it, and it now has three steps. The first one is to do a joy audit where you, ideally for a month, write down everything you spend money on. So you capture that monthly car payment. You're capturing that rent or that that mortgage payment. And so the idea is... At the end of the time period, you take a yellow highlighter. You don't add anything up. You just take the yellow highlighter out and you highlight anything that did not bring you joy during that time period. I've noticed nobody wants to write down what they've spent for a month if they know the end goal is going to be adding it up and judging. But when the end goal is to identify what brings you happiness, that's a whole nother exercise. And then you take a look at everything you didn't highlight. And of course, there are the usual things, utility bills, blah, blah, blah. But generally what I find is people will find a range of small things to really big things Small things could be, example might be going out with friends, you don't drink, they love to order the most expensive bottle of wine, and you split the bill evenly, and you come away feeling frustrated every time. So either don't hang out with them or invite them over to your place, BYOB. And you know another example, I see this with a lot of working moms trying really hard to make sure that their kids are having all the opportunities to participate in extracurriculars, maybe feeling a little guilty about working so much. And yet, you know, let's just use an example from the book where I, there's a woman who her kids hated soccer and soccer practice and she, they hated the coach and she hated driving them there. And so you eliminate that from the expenses and you free up leaky money that you can now reallocate towards the things that bring you joy. And sometimes those items are exactly the example you gave, Nikki, exactly that. It could be a car or a home that you change. The second step is something called the hourly wage tool, and it serves as a ruler This is inspired by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez's book, Your Money or Your Life, that they wrote back in 1992. It's kind of a classic in the frugality movement. The idea is that most of us have money because we worked for it, or somebody we love at some point worked for it. And so the money was an exchange of life energy. And so when you spend your money, you're spending your life energy. Most of us work or have work-related activities for about 2,000 hours a year. So if you're earning $100,000 income, that means divided by 2,000, you're earning $50 an hour before taxes. So now if you see something that costs $500, you can ask yourself, is that worth 10 plus hours of my life's energy? And there's no judgment. It's up to you. Um, And the answer very well may be yes. This Loft that I just purchased is an example of something when I look through the life energy spent. It's a pretty significant amount of life energy, but it's going to bring me exquisite joy. On the other hand, I drive an 11-year-old Mini Cooper because the cars don't bring me joy. And so that hourly wage test can be a great way to, to assess something a big purchase or a small purchase. And then the last one is the power of the pause, which is everything around us is set up online and in stores to make us want to purchase right now. And so if it's not an absolute essential, I encourage people to put it, if it's digital shopping, into their cart and wait a week. And if it's physical shopping, take a picture of it for a week. Then you separate your emotions and your amygdala that the stores are set and designed to stir up. And you can use the other two tools to kind of complete the uh, loop of joy-based spending. And I've never met anyone who's tried it, who has not found leaky money to reallocate into the things that bring them more joy.
2: can I it, you said something that I I wanted to go back to on this money equals life energy and I think so so many people can most people can relate and especially the example you gave hundred thousand dollars you know 2080 uh, roughly two thousand hours per year is is going to give you about 50 bucks an hour and you can do that equation there's probably a group of people too and many who are listening that, they've gotten to a place in life where they've been successful on the journey that you described earlier for yourself, where it's like, hey, I I leaned into this, maybe not for the right reasons, am not saying you did, but for the for the wrong reasons have become very wealthy. And there's potentially a disconnect then in that equation because it's just not quite straight math anymore, where it's like, you know, my money equals life energy. It's like, I've got so much money that it's just, there's not a real connection to how it correlates to my life's energy. And do you see there being a big risk and that side and not being kind of forced into that intentional, intentional, straight math of like one plus one, it gets real foggy.
1: Chris, that's a really interesting question. You're the first person to ask me that question. And I feel like it's kismet because I have just literally made one of those purchases where if I do the life energy, it's it's a meaningless number at this stage in my life. But I stop and think, you know, when I look at my net worth and what income I have coming in now that I'm in this slowing down stage of my life, I can, the return on joy of spending that money is very high. And so I think when you reach a point in your life where you've, gotten to a place of extreme financial health, you shift. And the way you think about is on return on joy. So it's not a mathematical number. It's a Nikki number, right? Does this car really make me happy? And that's how you make the decision.
0: I love that. And I think to me, all of this goes back to how beautiful it is to really spend time getting to know, and to your point, and a a continuous journey of getting to know your own values and how you're going to make those manifest within your own life show at the end of every single one of these podcasts, we always ask our guests to give the one thing that they would want to share with our listeners, the one thing they would want anyone listening to this or watching this to, to take out of this conversation, to take out of their book, or the life lesson you want to pe- pass on. What's that one thing for you?
1: Connection to yourself, to friends and family, to community connection is a superpower and what i find at the end of this entire journey is one of the experts i interviewed mary laverdi she suggested a, a mantra connection creates balance and that anytime you feel out of sync with yourself the question to ask is to whom or what do i need to connect in order to move incrementally forward towards happiness. So please connect.
0: So beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I know, I've, as I shared with you at the beginning, I love the book. I love getting to actually have some time to spend with you. Thank you so much for being here. If our listeners want to learn more from you, where can they find you?
1: Sure, well, first, if you're not certain If you are struggling with this problem, I've created a quiz, six questions at moneyzenquiz.com. And then to connect with me, because I'm now rooting my life in simplicity and small joys. Everything in my life lives at moneyzen.com.
0: Love that. And I would highly encourage everyone to read the book. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank you again, Manisha, for being here. And we'll see everyone next time.
1: Nikki, Chris, thank you. Thanks for listening to the one thing podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business,
0: visit the there. You'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T H E, the number one dot com to start living the life
1: you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by
2: going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing dot com. We'll see you next week.